Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to It's Rainmaking Time. This is Kim Greenhouse. I'm deeply honored to welcome Jim Witt to the show today because you need to know about him. I don't know if any of you have heard of the Weather Whiz, but along with Jim's very long professional life in teaching, he is a huge philanthropist who has created the Hope for Youth Foundation and has raised millions of dollars for children who are at risk, who are having difficulties, and he has created a long-range weather calendar with all proceeds going directly to children's charities. He's also been on radio and television for years and been part of creating a software program that, believe it or not, produces long-range weather forecasting that involves the sun, the moon, the gravitational pull of the earth, other planets. And it's very unusual because we don't really have anybody in the world doing what Jim's doing. I'm going to let him explain it to us. He is a rare breed. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome Jim Witt to It's Rainmaking Time. Well, thank you, Kim. That's quite an introduction. It's true. I also didn't say that you're a meteorologist as well. Yes, I am. We don't want to leave that part out. No, I do that each day as it goes on. (laughs) Uh, Even at the present time, I do broadcasts around the country. uh, And I do that to, again, raise money for for children. So uh, most of what I do is just charity and uh, raising money. Now, you sell a lot of these calendars and all these proceeds. Does it go to Hope for Youth Foundation or others? No. Oh, yes. They, in other words, the Hope for Youth Foundation is sort of like a collecting base. We collect the monies, and then we distribute it to about 50 to 55 different organizations, some that you would know about, like Ronald McDonald House or Make-A-Wish Foundation, uh, and others that, like we have Friends of Karen, which deals with youngsters that have very serious or terminally ill diseases, ter- terminal diseases, and as a result, they get this money, and we try to help the family get through such a terrible situation as a, a dying child. So that, that makes us feel good to see some progress in that area. You have to be selling a lot of these calendars to bring in that kind of money. What are the number of calendars you roughly produce a year or can produce a year? Well, we usually sell about uh, 20, 22,000 calendars a year. We only do it in the Northeast. In other words, it's a very localized thing, mostly the Hudson Valley, because as you get away from the Hudson Valley, people don't really know of me or the calendar. So, uh, we we raised most of them. Like, I just got a phone call the other night. Uh, the guy called me, and he said, you still have calendars left, and I have a few. He said, I need 25 calendars. I said, okay, I'll meet you somewhere, and he says, I'll write out a check to the Hope for Youth Foundation. I said, fine, because here we are in February, and we're still selling calendars. But you know what? Most of us can use those calendars. Yes, indeed, and the good part is when uh, December 31st, 2011 comes along, the calendar doesn't end. It goes to January 2012, and when the next year's calendar comes out, we start in November. So it's always a 15-month calendar with just gorgeous pictures of the Hudson Valley taken by a 
photographer named Joe Deutsch, 90 years old right now. Wow. Gets nothing for his uh, pictures. He just donates them. And so everybody in the Hope for Youth Foundation donates everything. They don't get any pay whatsoever. I can't even believe your resume, your background, how many awards you've gotten. They're all over the place. Distinguished Community Service Award, Annual Community Achievement Award, Distinguished Community Service Award, on and on, the Chester A. Smith Award, the Westchester ARC 2001 Friend of the Year Award, the 2003 Partnership Award, Peers Partnership Special Annual Award, Peers Influence, Peers. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. The Rotary Foundation of Rotary International, James Witt, a Paul Harris Fellow in Appreciation of Tangible and Significant Assistance, given for the furtherance of better understanding and friendly relations among peoples of the world. And then, of course, you were invited to speak at the White House to Mm. brief presidential advisors, which were economic, military, and and energy leaders concerning expected winter weather conditions in Afghanistan Mm. and also expected winter weather conditions in the U.S., and how would that affect the faltering economy? That's really an honor. When did you go there? Uh, a few years ago uh, with, with George W. Bush. What did he think of your long-range forecasting? Because that's not what's spread out around the United States. He has the calendar hanging up in his office when he was there. <laughs> <laughs> hey, I fooled a lot of people, didn't I, Kim? Well, did you? Well, I must have with all these awards. Pretty amazing. Let's talk about the basis upon which you are able to do this long-range weather forecasting because you're not only out of the nine dots with respect to forecasting, you're off the planet with regard Mm -hmm. to forecasting. And I want you to explain it to us because many people in traditional meteorology or climatology and geology would think when it comes to the sun, they would get it. But when it comes to the moon and other planets, hey, a little out there. So talk to us about it. Explain it to us. Well, Years ago, I uh, taught for Na- the National Aeronautics and Space Administration. I taught space uh, weather and space science for NASA. And at that time, I did, well, I guess I got to know some pretty pretty highfalutin scientists down there. And uh, some of them worked with uh, the planets as they revolved around the sun and uh, and how they affected uh, radio communication on the Earth. Uh, RCA had given me a scholarship uh, when I was in college because they thought I would turn out to be a pretty good teacher, and so they paid my tuition. So it was RCA and then at NASA, where they were doing studies, finding out sunspots on the sun and how it would affect Earth weather and so forth. And I thought, wow, this is pretty good. So I went back to this school in in Westchester County in New York, and I, I projected the sun on the ground on a piece of white paper, and I showed the students how the sunspots uh, moved across the sun day by day. And also I showed them when the spots were in the northern part of the sun, uh, the cold weather was usually in the eastern part of the United States, whereas when the spots were in the southern part of the sun, we sort of got warmer weather here and out in the western portion of the United States, it was colder. So I thought the planets had something to do with it. So what I did is I downloaded all the different harmonics that the planets could have be it in conjunction, be it in opposition, but I downloaded all of them 
and put down exact dates when they all occurred. And then I went back and I downloaded the weather day by day in all the cities in the United States and most of them in the rest of the world. Big how did job. you get that? Yeah, I mean, job. first of all, how do you know when you downloaded it that it was correct information you were downloading to then put into a software program or to create a software program? Well, you have to, it's from the National Weather Service and it's been checked and so you have to assume that they've done a good job and in the European countries, Sometimes the best I could start with was from 1977, which means that I had a lot of missing data, which hurt me. And I realized that I really need about 400 years of past weather data. And all I could get is maybe at some stations, 100. But what I found out, I had another student do a computer program for me so that I knew where every planet, the sun, the moon, was at any given second. And then I would say to him, well, tell me where they will be 2,000 years from now. And where they were 2,000 years ago. And he finally came back with that program. I had some good kids. And then I said, now I have one more request. If I pick a date, let's say August 17th, 2012, I want you to tell me what everything looked like in the sky then. And after that, go back in the past and tell me when it was like that in the past. And so then that past data became an analog date. And what does that mean, an analog date? An analog date, date means it's the same as it, uh, the, the future date is going to be the same as the past date. So when I take something that happened maybe in 1932, August 10th, and I hang that map up on the wall, when August 17th, 2012 comes along, the weather map around the world is the same. How come it's able to be the same? Well, I, because my, my theory, my hypothesis is that the uh, planets are the factors that cause the weather on Earth along with the moon and the sun. So when they're in the same spot in the same month, you should get the same kind of weather, and you do. So our whole understanding of weather goes way beyond atmosphere. It goes even beyond the sun, although the sun is a critical factor. Oh, yeah. You're saying, as part of the paradigm of what you're doing and what you're offering, that all the planets have impacts on weather. I think so. Well, that's a whole paradigm change, isn't it? Oh, yes. There's no question. Uh, Unfortunately, uh, they don't teach that type of meteorology in the weather schools, in colleges now, uh, because there's such a, uh, they just say anybody that would do that kind of research must be out of his mind. There cannot be a connection. It reminds me a little bit of astrophysics and astrology. Okay. And there's even an astrology called Magi Astrology. It's the only evidence-based astrology in the world. Mm-hmm. And their whole layout of the gravitational influences of planets is different than all the other 
types of astrology, and yet they're the only evidence-based astrology in their area. So there's constantly new knowledge coming out. I think that being a teacher, as long as you've been, and a love of students and all the students that not only were inspiring, but keep inspiring, that your first love has to be the love of learning. Oh, gosh, yes. I spend probably 10 hours a day, Kim, learning and researching what I'm doing. And, and I've done this for 40 some odd years, which means that if I'm willing to spend 10 hours a day, 8 to 10 hours a day for 40 years, and that includes Saturday and Sunday, I'm not so stupid to do something like that if I don't see very, very positive results. The only thing is, I can't tell anybody about it because they would just think you're a crackpot. And, and that's why they don't teach youngsters this in college and they should be because it's a whole new avenue of weather forecasting. Well, the thing that's so interesting is we know, for example, that the moon has critical influence on the tides, on how people feel. That's been accepted for a long time. Mm -hmm. So why don't we accept other impacts with planets outside of Earth that have a causal relationship with what happens here? Very interesting, but they don't. What's the fear about? Weather cannot be forecast uh, beyond two weeks, and not even two weeks, according to those who are in charge. Now, when I was out in Seattle, Washington recently, I did have the chance to speak with uh, some of the American Meteorological Society past presidents, and I told them I do something that's terrible. AMS does not approve of it. It's long-range forecasting. And uh, one of the past presidents said, well, I'll tell you this, a lot of changes are starting to take place, so don't give up. I thought that was good to hear. That's great. Yeah. Yep. See, all the students I taught, they do conventional weather forecasting. They don't do what I do. Although one does. One does the uh, forecasting for the... Uh, Farmer's Almanac. One of my students is the uh, meteorologist for the Farmer's Almanac. So he did follow through. Have you had a chance to look at planetary relationships to the Earth as it relates to ice ages or mini ice ages? Uh, you know, I haven't done that so much because I go back like 2,000 years, but the ice ages were maybe ten or 15,000 years ago. What about the little ice age in England? Uh, well, yeah, you can look at that. Uh, and I, what I did recently was look at the major storms that hit the East Coast in the last 50 or 60 years so I could find out what was the common denominator in all the storms. So I haven't done much in England only because I have enough to do in the United States. Got it. But if I had a staff, uh, oh, boy, it, I'm alone. You see, I, I just do it. I'm a retired uh, teacher and and do these things on my own because I'm excited. And so it's slow. It's the old turtle moving along, but uh, I do make progress. I think the X factor, if there's an X factor to all of this, is not so much in what you're looking at. The X factor is in the realm of what I call synthetic weather causation, meaning 
that when certain aspects of our military begin to experiment with their own weather programs to induce weather and have the technology to do that, you should read the paper Owning the Weather by 2025. Mm-hmm. And you'll see how serious the military is about owning the weather. But some of this technology is in Raytheon and in other locations. But that's the only X factor to me that is really scary. So I think what you do gives us a sense of what is in our dominion or what is capable of being known. But the minute the X factor of synthetic weather causation comes in from outside forces and agencies that feel they have the right to play ball, that's when I think it can supersede what you're able to generate, even though what you're able to generate is beyond anything that most weather forecasters could imagine. It's a big breakthrough in weather forecasting science. So you're thinking, Kim, in other words, what you're thinking about is uh, cloud seeding, making rain where we're supposed to have rain, steering hurricanes one way or the other. I'm thinking beyond that. I'm talking beyond. I'm thinking about the ability to spray our air with barium, strontium and aluminum every day in Los Angeles and in other parts of the United States on special weather projects that they're playing around with our ionosphere. I've done three shows on this. I'm talking about being able to induce not just hurricanes and storms, but earthquakes and to alter weather so fast. So I'm talking about the military industrial involvement in altering weather. It's a totally different gestalt and it's not in the radar of the average, even high-level meteorologist and climatologist, because they are not necessarily receptive to that realm. I know zero about it. Most people don't. <laughs> well, Most people, I, I, even I at the that. highest level, for example, you're bringing in this other paradigm of what long-range weather prediction can be that can be very helpful to many of us. But like I said, the only X factor that won't be able to be put into the mix is the way that synthetic causes are altering what can even be called weather. Wow. And that's very painful to me. Wow. Very, very painful to me. Read Owning the Weather by 2025. You'll understand. Look at the patents that were stolen from Nikola Tesla that are laying inside of Raytheon and other agencies like them. It's not funny. I see it every day in Los Angeles. I breathe it in. I've never had respiratory problems like I do today. Oh, my. Never. I'm a non-smoker. I'm a 13-year tournament tennis player. I've never, ever seen anything like what goes on. And it's not just in L.A. There are reports. People are now finally reporting this all over the United States and the world. Well, one of the most polluted cities, believe it or not, is Denver, Colorado. Yeah. Isn't that amazing? Uh, but now, Kim, where did you live before you were in California? Well, I've always lived in California, but I've been to 36 states in the United States and also traveled through Europe. I love to travel and soon we'll be traveling more again. But I love this country and I love most places of the world. This is the only area of anything related to climate and weather that the public really needs to know about. So I think that outside of synthetic weathering, what you're doing can be extremely helpful. How long range do you do? I know you said 15 months. We can go much further than that since we can predict where the planets, moon, and sun will be at any time. The only thing that limits how far out we can go with accuracy is how much data 
we have. In other words, every year I put the complete weather data for that year back into the program so that we increase the value and the accuracy of our forecasts year after year. So I have it done through now probably 2025 because it doesn't change unless I get new data to put in because the planets we know where they're going to be and we know where they've been so I could hang up the weather maps now and they'd be very, very similar to what they're supposed to be. See, there's another phenomenon going on, not to derail the subject of what you're doing, but contextually, there's a whole thing going on with climate change. Is it getting warmer? Is it getting cooler? What's the truth about that? The politicalization of weather and climate. There's this whole push for it being a man-made problem. I can't imagine talking about long-range forecasting of weather without asking you if any of the factors that we've always looked at with climate being in cycles, if you have anything to say about that. Well, as you know, there's another meteorologist that I deal very closely with, uh, Joe DeLeo, uh, Mr. Dr. Dewpoint, uh, he's well known as. And I think Joe and I have discussed this over many, many years. As you say, there have been so many cycles of, uh, well, just the glaciers themselves, and also warm periods and cool periods and and so when I look at it, I say everything in life, everything that we know is cyclical. I don't know of much that isn't. People are born, they get old, they die. Trees grow up and they die. And so we go through these phases. And what we're seeing on the sun right now is that the sunspots are going into a very, very minimum cycle. And in addition to that, it's a long cycle, meaning from solar max to the next solar max, which is supposed to be 11 years or 10.7 years, actually. Well, they turn out to be 12 and 13 years. The longer it stretches out, the colder the next, oh, 20 years will be. And the last cycle was extremely long. So I think global warming is not going to be a major factor could I be wrong? Absolutely. Because nobody knows, nobody knows if global warming, we've had it, of course we did from the 80s and 90s, but was it man-made? I'm not sure of that. But I think now that we're into 2011, we're going to start to see cooler weather. This is globally, not in any one spot, but globally cooler so I'm not one of those believers that we're going to see tremendous global warming and it's going to do us in. Um, I'm on the other side of the picture where I think global cooling will take over. And I guess if we come back, Kim, 200 years from now, we'll see who was right. But basically, the sun is one of the causal factors. Sunspot activity is directly correlated to cooling and warming. That's the point. That's the point and and. They now concluded, many scientists have concluded, that is the rotation of the planets, especially Jupiter, some of the heavy planets that actually form the sunspots and limit their uh, sizes and so forth and so on. So again, the planet interferes or influences 
uh, our climate. When we say the big picture, are we talking about astrophysics? You're talking astrophysics, yes, very much so. So the whole thing is we have to really become aware of space weather and relationships of these planets in order to get the true picture of influences. Well, that would be my theory, but somebody would say that's garbage. You know what I'm saying? Well, how do people say sunspot activity? Waxing or waning is garbage. Well, they're watching that very closely. They don't necessarily think that the planets are the cause of the sunspots. How about influence? Well, I certainly think they influence them tremendously, but some people don't believe in that either. See, that that's, you know, way back when, when we used to think that the earth was the center and the sun and all the stars revolved around the sun, when the f- first guy came along and said, no, 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 no. It's the other way around. We revolve around them. Remember, they threw him in jail. Was that Aristotle? I don't remember who it was. I think it was Aristotle. They threw him in jail. And he spent the rest of his life under house arrest because he said the earth is not the center. It was heresy. The earth actually uh, did not revolve, uh, or the sun didn't revolve around the earth. It was just the reverse. And for his re- reward, he was thrown in jail. So a lot of scientists, we're, we're trying to find out what's right and what's wrong. And so we're, we're not 100% sure. Have other meteorologists and climatologists been receptive in the quiet to you? Oh, yes. Uh, but they're not allowed to express it. In fact, uh, I was giving a talk at the American Meteorological Society many years ago while I was still teaching, and I was showing them the Lakeland weather program and how the kids really knew what they were doing and could forecast very accurately. And at the end, we always did a broadcast on the radio. The youngsters had to do a broadcast on the radio. That's how they were trained. And so I taped one of the broadcast that a kid did and uh, it went along and they were saying oh that's terrific that's terrific and at the end the youngster said and watch out on february such and such uh which was about three or four weeks from when he was doing this broadcast he said watch out for a big snowstorm in new york city and they all died oh you teach your kids oh that's terrible And the chief of the Weather Bureau came to me and said, well, I'm going to watch that. And uh, when that day came and New York City got snarled in a big snowstorm, he called me. He said, I don't know if it was luck or if it was skill, but uh, that was pretty good. (laughs) But that's, you know, uh, you know how how all this started, Kim? I was... (laughs) I was watching television one night. This was back in the 1960s. And a fellow from California, Harry Geist. Did you ever hear the name? I didn't. Sorry, Harry. <laughs> oh, no. Harry was a tremendous TV weather guy. And it was in October. And he said, and watch out, December 24th, Christmas Eve, 1966, there will be a huge snowstorm in New York City. And when the weather professionals came up to visit the kids, which they did often at the school, 
I said to him, what do you think of Harry Geis's forecast? They said the man is out of his mind. He's out of his mind. I said, well, don't you give him a chance? I mean, how do you know he's wrong? Uh, you can't do that. I said, okay. Well, when December 24th came along, I received 17 inches of snow along with thunder and lightning. It was a wild storm. So I sat down and I wrote a letter to Harry Geis saying, terrific call. I don't know how you did it, but it was great. And I told him about the Lakeland Weather Program. About three days later, I'm watching television, see him come on. He say, I got a letter from a, a Westchester, New York teacher. I want to read the letter. So he reads my letter on TV, CBS. And then he says, if that teacher, Mr. Witt, would like to come down and visit me, I would really welcome it. So I called up, of course, and went down to visit. And the first thing I walked in, he says, I know what you're going to ask me. I said, I'm going to ask you how you did it. And he said, I knew you were going to do that. He said, and because you're dealing with all these kids, I'm going to give you a couple of steps of how I did it, and then you can go on with your own research. And that's how I got started. Wow. What synchronicity. Yes. What synchronicity. That's like synchronicity, divine providence, oh, when yeah. all comes together. Very Unbelievable. interesting. Unbelievable. And I've been able to teach these youngsters, and, and uh, they're excited and so forth, and now they're in top spots around the country. Have you ever been attacked? No. That's because you're a nice guy. <laughs> How can you, you attack someone who gives to charity and creates products to help children? And a person who's been a teacher for almost all of his life and loves to learn and teach and has been so inspiring. I mean, seriously. Well, Kim, it's interesting because I've never made a penny on long-range forecasting. I give it all away. So, you know, if people want to say he's a charlatan, I'd say, well, you know, I okay, you know, I don't think so because I, I firmly believe in what I'm doing. Otherwise, I wouldn't continue. What do you think about the fact that in the teaching world, knowledge becomes coveted, it becomes ingrained, it becomes inflexible, it becomes dogma, and then the people who have it become religious about it and don't let in other inputs? I think that's terrible. I think it's terrible. In other words, when I go around to speak at Rotary Clubs or... Uh, anything like that, I show them exactly how I do the long-range forecast. I show them. And if they're interested, that's great. I show them how the moon influences the weather, uh, how the certain planets influence and so forth. And, you know, it wouldn't affect you what's coming up in March, but I have a very big storm forecast for March 19th on the East Coast. It could be a blizzard. And so... I have that. In fact, I was listening to a big station down in W in New York City, and the mayor of New York City was talking to the host of the show, and he said, and you know, Jim Witt's predicting a big snowstorm along the East Coast on March 19th. So it's in New York City that they're talking about this. Wow. So I've kind of spread it. I said, you know, here it is. If you want to know how to do it, I'll show you. I'm, I'm not hiding anything. I want to clarify something. So these calendars show the weather. Is it just in your area or all over the U.S.? Well, I could do it all over the U.S., but uh, I only do it for the Northeast now from, let's say, Washington up to up in Maine, where I do broadcasting. 
I don't do it for the whole United States because people don't know me anywhere else, only where they got a reputation in the Northeast where people want to buy the calendar. Well, what if people knew that you would do it for them for their area for the year? And oh, how many be... would you need per state? Let's say California wanted to know. The reason I'm asking you this is that farmers, you know, when you're talking about growing food and water resources and all that, I really think that this is becoming more and more important for planning. Yep. And I think that more people are going to want to know. So you may know the answer to this or you may need to think about it and get back to us. But how many people would you need to be ordering the calendar in a state? To be worth doing it. You'd have to look. In other words, what I do here in the Northeast, I do a very pretty calendar. Uh, You saw some of the pictures on the web page, perhaps the bright colors. And, you know, it it doesn't cost me that much to produce the calendar because I do 20 some odd thousand a year. But if you only did, let's say, a thousand, the calendar would be so expensive to print that it would be crazy. So could we say it would be 20000 a state? Well, you could, but there's another way of doing it. Okay. You could do it by the Internet. In okay. other words, there could be a web page. Oh, you somewhere. mean like print-on-demand? Sure, people could go and, uh, well, yeah, I haven't even thought about that, but you could say, all right, I want, uh, you know, the Gulf states, or, you know, even you could even do it by state. Uh, it's not that extremely difficult it would be time consuming i would certainly need assistance to do that sure but uh oh it's possible very possible i think it would help a lot of people for planning and also again aside from synthetic weathering activities there wouldn't be such surprise we wouldn't be at the mercy of the guys and gals on television telling us what they think is going to happen in the next week or two but you could have a forbearance with this and also a receptivity deeper into the future for planning purposes yeah. And unfortunately, even in New York City, a large city like it is, many of the meteorologists, quote, that are on television are not meteorologists. Uh, maybe they were uh, uh, doing move uh, acting or something in Florida and they were good looking. And so they brought them up to do weather in New York. It's unfortunate, but some meteorologists can't get a job because pretty faces take their positions, if you get what I'm saying. I do. Yeah. So some of the weather that you get is not really even that accurate because they really don't know the nuances of weather. So that hurts. I have another question. I want to go back to the lunar and solar cycles for just a minute. On your page on methodology at Mm theweatherwiz.com, under lunar and solar cycles, you say, doesn't the sun spew out charged particles that are captured by the Earth's atmosphere? Could these charged particles in any way affect the jet stream, storm development, and storm movement? Could the sun, with its changing length of sunspot cycle, control temperatures around the Earth? And then you say short sunspot cycles less than 11 years can induce a warmer climate, while longer cycles, 12 or even 13 years, can result in a cooler climate. Mm-hmm. This stuff is all interrelated. Mm-hmm. And when you were teaching space weather, weren't there some key drivers in how the weather of space impacts the weather that we're experiencing here that you can talk about? We talked about sunspot activity. Is there anything else? Well, I deal mostly with the moon, sun, and planets. Uh, I don't. I don't know if uh, other things in space really affect 
uh, not that I would say they don't. I just don't know uh, about it. I'll, I'll give you an example, all right? When the moon is very close to the Earth, they call that perigee. And when it is full and in perigee, it has a certain force to it. You add one more thing to it and have it on the celestial equator. In other words, if you extend the equator of the Earth out into space, that's the celestial equator. So you have full moon in perigee and on the celestial equator. And I've done this during the fall months. And out of 44 times that that has happened, we have had a major storm along the East Coast 42 times. Wow. So is that chance? And March 19th is another one of those days, and it's going to be in super perigee, very close, and it's going to be in March. Now, I haven't played around with stuff in March month much, but I'll tell you this. The last time it happened where we had a super perigee was March 8th, 1993, and we had the blizzard of 1993 on that day. Wow. Just coincidence, of course. No, this is patterned. You have noticed the patterns with the planets as it relates to here. The whole celestial system is involved in your long-range weather (laughs) forecasting. That's why I say I wouldn't be so silly to keep on doing this if I didn't see results. The results are phenomenal, and I just uh, write them down. And uh, and the people, like in the back of the calendar, I have Mother Nature's coming attractions. And there I pick out significant storms that are going to occur in the Northeast through the year 2020. Wow. And people love that because if they're going to plan a wedding or something, I, I just tell them, don't pick one of these days. You got plenty of days to pick. Don't pick one of these. I only take about 10 a year, 10 or 12 a year. And I say, don't pick these days. You've got to do this for other areas, Jim. You've got to. It's a matter of getting assistance to be able to do that. I would need some people. In other words, I can't do it alone. I totally understand. Yeah, can't do it alone. And I have, you know, to try and get a grant or something so you can hire people. The chances of getting a grant... (laughs) To study weather because of the planets, uh, you know, that would be ludicrous to even think it could be done. How much do these calendars go for? Eight dollars. Wow, that's pretty incredible. Oh, I do it very cheaply because if you bought a calendar like this in a bookstore or something like that, because it's color and great, you know, really good quality, uh, it would cost about $14.50 plus tax. Now, we get it because of the quantity. We can probably get these calendars printed for a little, about a dollar a calendar. And so when we sell them for eight, seven dollars goes directly to the children. So it's a good, quote, business if you wanted to make money. But right now we just want to help kids. That's really great. Yeah, it is. It's it's nice. You know, a lot of people say it's a, it's unusual to see a cha- uh, 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 charity that just raises money to give it away. 
you know, no, we have no administrative costs. Work out of our houses, use our own phones, use our own electricity, heat, whatever. So there are no, we pay no rent, no anything. My dear friend went to Montana a few weeks ago, and it was minus 17. That's delightful, isn't it? Now, it would have been nice to know about this mm-hmm. when you're from California. Yeah. There was no way to know this level of blizzard, cold. So I think that we need you to be doing this and provisioning to do this for other states or a pack of states. Mm-hmm. And maybe we can talk about what it would take to provide this in the Midwest and then West Coast, because very much like what you're doing for New York and the surrounding areas. See, Kim, what you want me, you you want me to do more yet. I do. (laughs) (laughs) And that's because it's rainmaking time. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, gee. I know that you love your family dearly and they've been with you during this whole process. What does your wife think about this? Well, you know, she happens to be a very, very, very good person. In fact, right now she is out. We, we she, she met a, a lady, a young lady in her early 40s that also, uh, she got lupus disease and, and some other diseases and the poor lady can hardly walk. So what my wife is doing today is she's going over to that lady's house and then she's going to drive her to the doctor and wait at the doctor's. Usually takes about an hour and a half, and then she's going to you know drive her back home. And Nancy, my wife, is a uh, she's a grief counselor. So what she does is she works for hospice, not works for donates a time to hospice and runs groups for parents that lost children. And uh, so this is this is what she does. So she's busy as I'm busy, pretty much doing the same type of thing. That's really beautiful. Yeah. You know, she's, she's really, really talented. She's so good. And she runs these groups. Uh, she runs about three groups uh, in different sections. And uh, that's what she does. That's awesome. Well, I really, really appreciate you taking your time out of your day to share about your work and your contributions with us. And I'd like to know the name of your son that passed. My son's name was Thomas. Thomas. Thomas James. Ladies and gentlemen, this segment of its Rainmaking Time is dedicated to Jim's late son, Thomas. Oh, nice. I really want to thank you for being our guest, for the breakthrough work and the discoveries you made and all the children and families that you inspire, for the charity work that you do, and really one of the most exciting predictive systems we've ever known in weather and climate. It's an honor to be with you today. Thank you so much, Jim. Thank you.